The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Matt Wexler. He is a director, cinematographer, and an award-winning filmmaker from Chicago and the founder of Hourglass Films. He decided to hang up his work-for-hire hat to pursue his dream of documentary filmmaking, and he has since been nominated for two local Emmy Awards and has won several film festival awards. The Hourglass Film Company is dedicated to inspiring change in the heartland of the United States and beyond, I might add. Their stories focus on social and environmental injustice, as well as the sustainability of our planet. They seek to provide perspective on political issues by exploring characters rarely seen in the media. Through empathy and morality, they strive to create lasting change in American culture in the hopes of providing prosperity for future generations. Welcome, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, I just watched your new film titled Right to Harm, which exposes the devastating public health impact of factory farming and who really suffers within our country. And after watching your film, I thought I've got to speak with you and let more people know about your work and the beauty of your filmmaking. Why did you decide to focus on this issue of right to harm it's really a takeoff on right-to-farm legislation, but you focused on animal confinement or factory farms. Why did you choose to focus on this topic? Yeah, well, much like your show, I was really interested in the intersection between food, agriculture, and health. And that led me down the road, myself and my wife, down the road of making our first film, Sustainable, which came out in 2016. That was really about some of the local champions around the country who have helped the regenerative farm movement. And in the midst of doing that, we interviewed John Eichard, who is an agricultural economist from the state of Missouri. And he's the one who really introduced us to the topic of how large factory farms disproportionately affect those who live near them. And we felt that this was definitely going to be the topic of our next film. It had to be. We were so moved by it, but we knew we couldn't include it in our first film. But It was just going to have to be its own film. So you visited five rural communities. You visited eight states. You basically went all over the country from Arizona to Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Iowa, of course. What were the common denominators from all of these rural communities that were affected by these factory farms? The main common denominator was how all these people were falling on deaf ears of those who were in charge of their local regulations or state regulations. It it was as if their complaints were going in one ear and out the other, and the stress it was causing them in their own personal lives, and then dealing with how the towns that they lived in were falling apart. If they were towns that were based on tourism or, 
or bordered other towns that were tourism towns that had gone away. It was kind of the epicenter of the death of rural America is what I was seeing. And, and it was very much relating to a 2017 Wall Street Journal article that I had read that had made it basically pointed out that rural populations were the new inner city ghetto, leading in all poverty statistics. And it was just really disheartening to see this happening. And so the goal was really to give these people a voice to speak for their issue. Well, Right to Harm is an absolutely beautiful and riveting film. And I highly recommend that anyone who has a chance to see it to head to their closest movie theater and not only watch the film, learn about the issue, shape your food buying decisions around it, and also go online and look at ways that you can participate to change policies. And I'll just give everyone that website. It's http righttoharm.film. And you've got a connection there to SRAP, which is an organization that helps rural communities dealing with these atrocities. Yeah, so we really leaned on SRAP to help us find a lot of the communities that were affected by this since they knew these communities well and had been helping to support them. And they also helped us to regain the trust of these communities because filmmakers do come in or media does come in and promise a lot and deliver very little, if anything. And we wanted to make sure that the people we met with knew that we were dedicated to doing this and getting this story out. Yeah, what were the expectations of the people that you interviewed? What did they want from you? They were very used to crews coming in and asking them five questions, taking a handful of shots, being in and out in a matter of two hours. And the first filming we did actually with Lynn and Nancy Utesh in Kewanee County, Wisconsin, they couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that we wanted to film with them for two days. And by the end of it, they were exhausted. It almost was as if, as if we had uh, overstepped our bounds. And they realized afterwards, after we showed them a little bit of what we were trying to do, that this was the process. This was the process that needed to happen in order to really help tell their story in a way that no one had before, more than what a, a, a news clipping could do. And then they welcomed us back and with open arms and wanted us to be there to help tell this story. And that was kind of a similar situation with a lot of the communities. It was, why are you still here? Why do you keep coming? We haven't seen anything from you yet. What are your intentions? And we were just hoping that coming off of making our last film that these communities would see that we did have the intentions of trying to share their stories along with those similar stories around the country in building something that was that made a pretty strong argument about what's going on here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, Matt. I think that art has a very important role to play in changing policy. And I know part of your film covers the memorial service for Stephen Wing, who was in North Carolina and who studied the public health impact on communities that were right up against these factory farms. Mm -hmm. And what I have found working in the field of public health and nutrition is that we tend to focus on facts. We can tell you how many people got sick. We can tell you the organisms in the water that are getting into groundwater and drinking water and the effect of those on public health. But what we don't do very well is touch on the emotional and the personal consequences of these CAFOs or confined animal feeding operations. 
And that's the beauty of film and the beauty of art. And I think that if we're going to change policies, we have got to do it through storytelling. We have to have the facts to back us up, of course, and we have them. But I think that your route and your role is really important. So let's dive into some of the stories. I can tell you that of all the people that you interviewed, I probably was most struck emotionally by Sonia Lopez's story. Mm-hmm. Why don't mm-hmm. you tell our listeners about Sonia? Yeah, Sonia. Sonia moved to uh, Tonopah, Arizona, 25 or so years ago, bought a land and bought a house and was living her dream, gardening, and had five kids. And I think it was in 2014 that four and a half million chickens moved in as their next door neighbor. And I don't think she knew what to expect right away, but what started happening is her son started to get seriously sick. And the rest of her kids were getting sick too, but her son was already dealing with asthma. And so his asthma was exacerbated by the fact that they were now living next to ammonia and hydrogen sulfide pollution from this chicken factory. And the state did a modeling on the potential pollution and its reaches. And she was living in an area that uh, by law would need to be evacuated if this facility fell under the Clean Air Act. Mm. I don't know if, how, how much of it I want to give away, but she couldn't sell her house. And she had to battle with the issues of not being able to her house, but wanting to leave for the sake of her son's health. Exactly. And actually just recently, since the movie's come out, she actually got laid off from her job, and now she's searching for a job. So she's really underwater at this point in time financially. Oh, this is so tragic. Well, let me tell you, and I think this will only make it more imperative, I think, for our listeners to want to see this film, but when your child is ill... There is nothing that is more important than helping that child feel better. And as part of the film, you show the bottles of medicine lined up that this little boy has to take because of his asthma that's exacerbated by the air quality from these chicken farms. And I just kept doing the math in my head, like how much the prescriptions cost and all of the externalities that the taxpayers have to pick up while a very few people walk away with the profits of these horrible industrial factory farms. And so we as taxpayers pay for this quote-unquote cheap way and efficient way of producing chicken. I don't think we're doing full-cost accounting here. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, the true cost of food when you think about it, you know, certainly is reflected in how much we're paying in health care. There's no doubt about that. And also reflected in where our tax dollars are going. The fact that these types of facilities can receive government or state funds to build the facilities. They can be exempt from having to pay for permits. They can be exempt from uh, having to abide by a lot of laws that would cause them to pay penalties or fines or certain taxes. The Hickman facility specifically in Arizona actually uses prison labor, and they get to write that off as a tax credit. So those uh, workers are actually paid under minimum wage, and they look at it as a uh, a do-good program 
because they think they're providing jobs to these people, but the occupational hazard that's caused to these prison inmates is is, is horrible, too. So this so, is wrong on just so many levels. It, it, it needs to stop. It will, it will end at some point in time. People will come to their senses. Well, it's not sustainable, so it's got to end one day, but not without leaving a lot of dead bodies in the wake. So I'm curious, I had no idea, you know, of course, these are the details that come out during an interview, because you can't include everything in a film. But I'm wondering, so if the prisoners who are working at the poultry facilities are getting sick, there you go again, are taxpayers then having to pay for their medications? Yeah, that's a good question. But the fact that um, this company is basically using below minimum wage labor to operate their facility, and that is the way that they're able to operate and pass this, you know, the quote-unquote savings of their eggs onto their customers. That's what's required in order to create a cheap food system. Right. Um, to, to subsidize the labor costs. So imagine if we had a food system that employed so many more people where those people were were paid a fair wage to do what they they do, it would increase the price of food, but it would decrease the price of health care. It would um, decrease the uh, unemployment rate. Um, it would bring a lot of prosperity back to the rural America uh, issues that we're facing. So that's really the future. That's what people have to start to concentrate on, that our votes can matter locally at a state level and a federal level, that no matter which side of the aisle you're on or in between, that you can vote for a better food system and and you're voting for so many more things when you're voting for that. Right. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Matt Wexler. He is a director, a cinematographer, award-winning filmmaker from Chicago, and the founder of Hourglass Films. We are talking about his latest film titled Right to Harm. You mentioned something. I want to touch on two points. One is that this Hickman Farm, the owner is actually one of the representatives for the region. So he's got a political base and he's got the advantages of helping to control some of the legislation that would protect his business opportunities. And you also mentioned the issue of jobs. And I was recently testifying in the Capitol in Missouri about a bill, a very nasty bill that would open up the floodgates really for more of these factory farms. And I listened very carefully to the opposition, the Farm Bureau, for example, that came in and said, well, you know, these kinds of operations, they bring jobs, they bring employment, we're going to bring money into the state. But what I see when we do full cost accounting is that actually we we just further degrade our rural communities, which is exactly what you've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Um the hog industry is the, the greatest example of that. We have 90% less hog farmers in this country than we did just in the in the 1980s. And up until 2015 or so, we had the same number of hogs that were being produced in the country. Mm. So we just recently surpassed the number of hogs that were being produced in the 1980s, but we're doing it with only 10% of the workforce. 
So it's just a, a classic example of the consolidation of agriculture. And this is really about bank business. I mean, when you think about who's providing beef to the world, it's about four companies that are pr- providing over 80% of the beef to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the same is true in, in the chicken industry, pork industry. These are global commodities. The pork that's being produced in Iowa or North Carolina is not going to people in the U.S. by and large. It's going to people mostly in China and in Asia. President Trump recently opened the floodgates to allow for chicken and beef to be traded between the U.S. and China, $1.25 billion worth of chicken and beef. At that point in time, the chicken industry was sitting on a year's worth of uh, broiler chicken, waiting for that trade deal to open up. The government recently bought over a million pounds worth of cheese from the dairy industry because the dairy industry can't sell it. So the government bought it, uh, which is basically a bailout of the dairy industry. So I I don't see how any of this really helps rural America. It just seems to help the pocketbooks of, of large business. Exactly. Well, let's visit, when your film first opens up, we meet Professor John Eichard, and he explains that early in his career, he's an agricultural economist, and early in his career, he went along with the idea that, yeah, if we produce food efficiently, this has to be a good thing, because that's what we were taught. That's what Earl Butt said when we were going to produce more food and we were going to be modernized. And that's another frame that the industry uses. It's like, this is the modern way to feed the world. But we're not feeding our communities. We are losing the protection of having more localized and regionalized food systems. And I think that something happened in his career, like in the 1980s during the farm crisis, he realized, oh, this isn't working as I had been told. And he switched the way he started thinking. And then he talks openly about his his revelations that he's had. And he's standing on the farm of Gary Nestor in Iowa. And his home is 750 feet away from a hog confinement. And he yeah. basically says, we were hoping to retire here, and we can't even go outside anymore. So what kind of recourse do people have in these rural communities when they are basically, they're at risk of losing everything that they've invested in with their property. They have health risks related to living next to these confined operations. What can they do? Mm-hmm. The story is very similar for almost everyone that it is that it was for Gary Nestor, and, and that is he found out too late that these uh, facilities are moving in because these facilities fit underneath the animal unit regulation that Iowa says is required for certain permits. And there were two, there was actually two facilities, both 750 feet away from his home both just over the minimum required distance apart of 1,250 feet, I believe, or 1,250 yards. Don't quote me on that. But because of that, those facilities did not fall under uh, certain regulations, and therefore they can be built without the state government really even being a part of it, without the Department of Natural Resources being a part of it. Like anyone in that situation, the first thing he did was talk to his local county board. What can I do about this? 
and they what do they say? Nothing. You can't do anything about this. Then he talked to the to the facility owner. What can we do about this? Nothing. And eventually he realized that the owner of these facilities actually lives about 150 miles away in a city and eventually got a hold of him. They planted some trees to try to block the view of it as a good gesture. That doesn't block the smell, nor does it block the sound. He was left with no other decision but to file a nuisance lawsuit. And that's really the only way at that point in time to be heard. Mm -hmm. And now... The nuisance lawsuit that he filed would now wouldn't even be possible to to be filed at this point in time because of new re- legislation that's been passed in the state of Iowa, the new right to farm legislation. So every time you see people bring these lawsuits to the to uh, trial, you see the state passing stricter regulations with right to farm laws that basically say no one can do this anymore at some level. So people are getting sick. What are they doing? What is Mr. Nestor doing these days? I don't know if his uh, nuisance lawsuit has settled. I mean, when I was on the farm with him and he was just saying, you know, his hope is that they these facilities stop doing business, that no more hogs are moved in there and he doesn't have to listen to the squealing every day and smell the the hog feces every day. But just like everyone else, I mean, he's, he's, he's going to be SOL. I mean, he's, he's, nothing good is going to become a, become of that. Even if he, even if he's awarded a win in his nuisance lawsuit, that still gives these operations the right to uh, operate. Right. Um, the hog industry, it's, it's a permit to pollute and you can only sue in an in instance like that one time. So once he's won his one lawsuit, the company would have to pay him, but they would still be able to continue doing business as usual. So, hmm. Yeah, um, it's such a shame. At the end of the film, John Eichard gives us hope in that we are seeing some moratoriums being enacted with people coming together and fighting. They're waking up, he says. But... At the same time, you think about the individuals and the suffering that they continue to endure while the rest of us wake up. And I was recently speaking to a gentleman who was dealing with this encroachment of a hog, a farrowing facility here in the state of Missouri. And he said, you know, nobody talks about the emotional strain. We talk about the bacteria that end up in the drinking water. We find out, you know, all of a sudden our the the water that we cherish is contaminated. We've lost tourism, no more canoeing, no more swimming in streams, no more fishing. But we're left with this emotional trauma that we really aren't talking enough about. Yeah, it's the it's the death of rural America. That's really each individual is is just another victim of that blight that is just overtaking rural America. And it's really a shame to someone like myself, who I'm 39 years old, married with two kids, and my wife and I would love more than anything to have a a farm out in rural country that we can uh, retire to at some point in time, but somewhere where we can grow our own food and escape from the city 
and maybe even move there permanently. But the thought of moving to a place like that right now or even buying someplace, worrying about a CAFO moving in next door to us and not having any control over that since local control is is not an option in, in most states. You know, that's really disheartening. And the, it's it's a weird oxymoron of, of how people complain about this issue because those who are living in these rural towns say that we don't want urbanites to move here and complain about hearing the rooster crowing, right? But at the same time, they're, past, they're, they're having referendums to close their schools because the, the population of their schools not, is not large enough to even continue paying tax dollars into that. So the population in rural America has been going down for, I think, five or six years in a row. And the consolidation of agriculture is a large part of that. It's driving people like myself, young people, away from wanting to move out and have a, a calmer life. At some point in time, we have to figure out what we're going to do to rebuild these these small rural economies, you know, bring Main Street back to all these small towns. You know, that has to be part of this conversation. If people can't draw the dots and see that this CAFO issue is, first of all, it's the epicenter of how food is controlled in this country and really the world at, at that point, because right now it's, it's really global commodities that we're talking about. And we have to really think about restructuring our food system to put more people on the land, to bring back the economic prosperity in, in rural America so that people like me would, would want to move there and want to raise their kids in small towns. What, what, what would be so bad about that? Right. If people want to see your film, how can they do that? So it's playing around at film festivals right now. We will be opening it up for community screenings starting this summer, certainly by, I think, August this year. And uh, they can go to our website, righttoharm.film, and request a screening. And within a couple months, we'll have everything set up so that people can go ahead and uh, reserve their community screening and, and uh, have their order processed and everything to be able to do that. Uh, the film will be available in educational libraries, in uh, public libraries and colleges and universities starting in the fall. And then at some point in time, we're hoping to, to make our broadcast debut sometime next year and, and hopefully uh, hit some sort of streaming platform and still working out the details and all that stuff. So we'll see. Right. Well... I can't recommend this film enough. I think that you brought up some incredibly important points that are not in the film. Just kind of getting our heads around the idea that rural communities are the new inner city ghettos. I mean, just to have everyone think about that for a moment. I know that if you travel in the United States and you're just on the interstate, it's really easy to not see these communities. And it is tragic to see them crumbling away. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could bring them back? But the first step to do that is to raise awareness. We do that with film and the arts. And then we can work on policy together. And maybe we can have a truly sustainable food system. So I want to thank you. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Helmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank 
Mr. Matt Wexler, director, cinematographer, award-winning filmmaker from Chicago, the founder of Hourglass Films. We have been talking about his latest production titled Right to Harm. And if you go online, it's righttoharm.film to learn more. Matt, thank you so much for this important work. Oh, thank you, too. Thanks for uh, championing the cause. Absolutely. Absolutely. 